Welcome everyone to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Blair Henley. You name it, big tournament. She's usually there. She's hosting. She's doing their digital content. Uh, she is uh, really, really great at what she does. And I wanted to talk about kind of the shifting look of tennis and how these tournaments have to be organized in the era of COVID-19. Now, some of these changes are temporary. Some of them might be permanent, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about from electronic lines calling to ball people handling towels to the effect of no crowd tennis on the competitors. So we get into all of that and more really fun conversation, which I think you'll enjoy with Blair Henley. We're joined for the first time by Blair Henley. She is an ever present voice on both the ATP and the WTA tours, uh, hosting some of the biggest tournaments of the year and one of the best social media games in the biz, I might add. Blair, uh, thanks for coming on Monday Match Analysis. That means a lot, Gil. I appreciate that. I don't know if I can live up to that, actually, but thank you. Well, you know, uh, I, I do the intro and, uh, you know, it's the, the people will hopefully check it out. And uh, your Twitter over the Western Southern Open and U.S. Open period, it was tops, I got to say. Um, you were in the bubble. The benefit of actually, yes. yes, which is uh, going to be useful in our conversation. I want to kind of get into some of the changes we've seen with tennis in the pandemic, and as someone like yourself who's often you know on the grounds and seeing things firsthand. And the U.S. Open was really the first, and the Western Southern Open was really the first go at this whole tennis during you know the era of social distancing. Uh, I, I think you have a, a great perspective on all of this. So three things I want to hit on pretty much, uh, towel handling, which you wrote a great piece on for tennis.com, um, electronic line calling and the absence of a crowd. Let's start with the first one. And you, you, you got to hear my thoughts on this because uh, I was grateful you reached out for me, uh, out to me as a former U S open ball person. Um, but I guess the reality about this one is people were talking about this before the pandemic had even started. You're also, you were also, um, a ball person, right? I was, yes. Citibank champions, uh, circa many, many years ago in Ryan, New York. Yes. Did, did it ever gross you out handling the towels? It did not. I it, I never gave it a second thought. I, I thought it was cool, to be honest. I was like, oh, <laughs> professional tennis players sweat. This is great. Uh, no, but I, I really never thought about it. It was part of part of the job and never gave it a second thought. Same here. Never thought about it. Never grossed me out. But how about, you know, when it, when it started to get some attention and people started to question the optics of it, where did you land? And I'm. let's go before the pandemic, before germs were the most horrible thing that everyone really needs to seriously avoid. Well, I always thought it was interesting, right? Because you do see on Twitter, tennis Twitter, if you will, has been very vocal for the past several years about how could we possibly make teenagers, you know, sometimes younger, sometimes adults, depending on the tournament, handle the sweaty towels of tennis players. Had tennis players perhaps taken advantage of the fact that they could get a towel delivered? 
Yes, there were absolutely players. And I actually spoke to Greg Rusedski, who said it was just part of his routine. It was part of uh, the way that he made himself take his time in between points. He talked to a sports psychologist and that was the way that they sort of figured out that he would give himself time to sort of reset in between points was by calling for the towel. It was, it was a nice little break he could build in for himself. Had a lot of players done that? Absolutely. However, in terms of the actual ball people, ball kids who are doing it, I was thinking, has anyone ever asked them? Because as someone who'd done it, I'm like, it didn't bother me one bit. And so I took it upon myself to ask some of them at the US Open because I was so curious if they had these same strong feelings that so many people on Twitter did watching this on TV. Yeah, I, I actually remember there was this kind of viral video of Nadal handing a ball person some, some trash to throw in the garbage and some people were getting on him. And I, I remember tweeting, I would be so happy to throw out Nadal's trash. Like when you are in that position, like this is great. Um, anyway, now what did they say? The, the, you, the ball people that, that you spoke to, was everyone kind of on the, we like towels side? Yes, that was the majority. Um, and I talked to a variety. Um, I talked to adults. I talked to technically kids on the under 18 crowd. I talked to men. I talked to women. Uh, I did have some people sort of point to the fact that, yes, has it become excessive? Probably. Um, and then I also talked to one uh, ball person, adult woman, who she's a manager of a restaurant, that's her day job. And she loves tennis and comes to the US Open and works every year. And she said, yeah, I could probably do without the towels. So I did get a range, but I would say most of them had just said, even if they didn't love that part of the job, it was part of the job. And so, you know, it was part of the whole thing. And people aren't being ball people for the money. It's not, not like they're raking in the big bucks. They're doing it because they love it. And so if that were as ghastly as a lot of people thought that it might be, I don't think you would have had people lining up. I think the the ratio at the US Open, they have, it's in the article, it's been a while. I got now. it, they I got have, it. Yeah, I, go for I it. I went through this drill, for about 400, 500 people, and generally they'll take about 80 rookies. Yeah, there you go. So th there are a lot of people who want to do it. Only a few actually get the chance. And I think if it were as awful as some people said, that there wouldn't be a line out the door for the job. I told you this. And when I really put some thought into this whole controversy, I came out with this kind of weird contrarian opinion, which is just completely genuine, which is that the players should be grossed out because our hands are filthy and, and they are putting our hands on their faces. So that to me is the, is the germaphobe uh, dilemma there, not ball people's hands, which like are already again, filthy, getting more filthy. I, I think man, then that is a contrarian view indeed. <laughs> um, I mean, but really though, I, I think, and this is something that, uh, you know, probably for, for the better long-term COVID has sort of made us think about. We, I mean, I didn't really put much thought into it before. Uh, I didn't put much thought into the dirty ball people's hands. I didn't really think about the potential issues that could arise by handling someone else's sweat. 
uh, I just didn't think about it at all. Uh, and, and granted, you know, in the COVID era, we've had to think about every little detail about the possible transmission of germs. Long term, that's probably a good thing. But in terms of the towels, I don't think there was necessarily this overwhelming group celebration among ball people once they heard they weren't going to have to handle towels anymore. Sure, sure. Well, okay. Now, now that we're in the times that we're in, it's pretty obvious we don't want ball people running up real close to players. Uh, so it'll be it'll be towel racks for now. Just overall, I guess, what's the? I mean, is is the standard for ball people? You think just going to be you handle the balls right now and that's it, and and that's going to be how you expect uh, most tournaments to move forward? Yes. Okay. I, I think I talked to a few people and I don't think I, I don't think there was one person other than Greg Grusetsky, who was like, I think ball people handling towels will come back one day. But in terms of the people actually running the thing, they were like, yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen again. And you did see, I mean, at the ATP finals, even in New York, it's not, it, you know, as long as you could have those towels in each bin at the back, you know, you had them in your, your different locations throughout the players seem to be just fine. I do think the time clock, is going to take some getting used to in terms of managing your time better if you have to go get your towel. Uh, but overall, I don't think the uproar was enough to warrant thinking about going back to ball people handling towels again in the future. Right. Yeah, exactly. That was my only concern, though, about the extra time that it might take for players to go to their corner. And obviously, you got to get the serve off or you get a warning and then a point or no, a serve. A serve is the second one. And you also wonder too, we missed a good chunk of the hottest portion of the year. And so I do wonder, you know, play started again in the US in Lexington. I know it was, it was pretty warm for the women. There were definitely some super humid days in New York, but in terms of heat in New York, it was mild compared to other years that I've experienced. So you do sort of wonder if players were getting their own towel in Atlanta for instance, which tends to be one of the most hot and humid uh, places on tour during the summer, maybe there would have been uh, more issues. So I don't know, having play, having to maybe play during that time of the year next year and get their own towels, we'll see if maybe there are some more issues with that. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess nobody needed a towel in 40 degree Paris. Right. Um, let's, so another kind of personnel on the court, which is very great position to be and highly recommend for anyone who can be as close to the court as possible lines people but that's been uh, another another uh job that's been at least experimentally phased out i remember western and southern it was the top courts had lines people but then the outer courts didn't am i remembering that correctly i believe so okay believe, i'm trying to remember on um yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. And even it might have been just the top court. Yeah. And um, so I guess I guess we saw it go both ways. Obviously, clay is another story. And then, you know, we have the big Hawkeye uh, debate, which is uh, we won't get into. I, I guess like this is tough for me. I'm really conflicted here because electronic line calling makes a whole lot of sense to me there aren't a lot of downsides I can think of other than a really important one, which is it, it feels really wrong to advocate for anyone in the tennis ecosystem losing a job. I know. Yeah, it's, it's rough. And, and one of the things I've had the privilege of getting to know so many officials 
in my job because I'm, I'm courtside a lot of the time. And so you just sort of see like the rotation of the lines people coming in. Hi guys, good to see ya. Um, I've gotten to know a lot of the chair umpires a lot of time, you know, when I, when I was a rookie having to make sure I was pronouncing their names correctly, like, can you please, can you say this out loud for me? Uh, so I've gotten to know a lot of the chair umpires as well. Uh, the lines, the chair umpire sort of career track, a lot of them start off as lines people. So there's that aspect as well is, is you need some way to sort of train the next gen of chair umpires. Yeah, I mean, I think torn is the best way to put it because I've gotten to know these people. They're very good at their jobs. They're, they're very serious about their jobs as well. For a lot of them, it's not, I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, take a week off work or I'm retired and I'm going to go be a lot, an official for a week. Uh, for a lot of them, it's a much more serious uh, endeavor than that. Uh, so yes, I, I, I hurt for them thinking that the opportunities might be very much streamlined. I've been in touch with a tournament uh, that is going to be happening at some point. I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I think in the next few days, we're going to be hearing some schedule updates, uh, okay. but you know, for the reason of having as few people as possible on the grounds, Hawkeye Live. Um, they're going to have some some backup officials, but it's going to be Hawkeye Live. Uh, and it's just, I think economics wins out. As an economics major, I can say, I think if the numbers make sense and Hawkeye Live long-term is the better play in terms of the, the financials, I think that's probably the way that it's going to go. I think that is going to be the judge and jury in this case. All right. Cat cash rules, everything. I hate to say. <laughs> <laughs> what about like from uh, the, cause I actually, I guess as a journalism major, I was not thinking about that side of things. And um, I, I was thinking more about, well, do we like human error? Do we want human error? Do we want to see people on the court? And I kind of land at tennis is this really unique game where like, it's so fair. There's so little human error, unlike so many other sports where the, the officiating is really, really important and actually decides the outcome. Why not just go all the way to, we're going to get every call, right? Yeah. Good question. I, I do like the human error though, human error part to answer that side of things. Like I, I enjoy it. I think it's fun. I like having extra people on the court. Um, I'm sure Novak Djokovic, as, as he said, may <laughs> disagree, but I, I think a lot of us uh, like that. We like the fact that you have to challenge a call. I will say the champions tour event in Delray beach has used Hawkeye live the past two years. So it was one of the first, official events to ever use it. And last year, Tommy Haas was straight up arguing with the chair umpire over the Hawkeye live call. So I do think that players are going to find a way to mix in drama, whether or not there are lines people on the court, whether it's with the chair umpire, uh, Nick Kyrgios can argue with the fans, they're, you know, crying babies in the stands, whatever it is, I think we're still gonna get drama. Hopefully eventually we can have a full stadium again of people. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're going to have enough people to where the drama can still happen. But yeah, it's, I will say, and I think Dennis Shapovalov argued this uh, with David Law on Twitter at one point, but when there's a ton of money on the line, 
to think that a call could not go your way in a crucial setting when there are ranking points. I mean, it's your career, it's your livelihood. There is like a feeling of total and complete helplessness when a call, when somebody gets a call wrong and you're on the court and you know, there's no recourse. And so I think it was nice at the ATP finals too, to see the, um, the instant replay or the VR or the VAR. I, you can tell how little soccer I watch by how I don't know how to actually pronounce it. <laughs> how do you know what it is? Is it VR? I uh, heard it's, it's VAR, right? I, I, that's I don't know. I mean, I... <laughs> uh, anyway, but it was nice to be able to check the double bounce. I'm sure Kiki Mladenovic would have liked to have had that at uh, the, the US Open. So again, when there when there's so much on the line, I don't want to be the person who who is saying no. But it's so much fun to see what happens when somebody gets a call wrong. It's it's the worst feeling to be on the court and have that happen. And so I think for the good of of the sport, for the integrity of the game, and for the players feeling comfortable and feeling like they're going to get a fair shake, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, I'm all for drama, big drama guy, but I don't want drama with the lines people in the chair umpire fight fight each other you guys are playing you guys can fight each other don't fight the umpires um and respectfully what i would say to to david law who was arguing that the the kind of the meltdowns are what brings people in it's like if tennis is relying on john mcenroe-esque blow-ups to bring fans in there are other problems right uh yes though i am you know i'm fine with blow-ups as well <laughs> yeah right. happy to sprinkle those me in too, me too um let's see i guess uh okay i i guess we hit ev everything on that lastly now this is something we can all everyone agrees on this last one but i still think it's a fascinating topic and that's the the absence of crowds again when i say we all agree i mean we all hope that as soon as possible uh, we can pack the stands again to to watch tennis and create those amazing environments that that make the sport so great. Uh, but I'm just curious. I think the first real meaningful with rankings points on the line and prize money on the line, the first tennis without a crowd was Western and Southern Open. You were there. What did it feel like? It felt just a little sad. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. I think the first match, uh, I'm trying to remember, Cincinnati, there was maybe a different feel in the US Open because I think Cincinnati, there was a feeling of, we're just glad to be here it, with the players as well as the staff. It's like, whew, we got people on the court. There have been no major disasters yet. Like, let's, we have a tournament being played, praise the Lord. Like, so I think there was that sort of feeling for Cincinnati. I think where it, it really hit me at least was when we started US Open play. Uh, in fact, it was one of the early round matches. It was Stevie Johnson facing John Isner, a night match on Armstrong. Stevie Johnson played such an incredible match and, and some, I mean, hot shots galore, two Americans. You can just sort of imagine what the atmosphere would have been like on a normal year. And, you know, I have a soft spot for Stevie Johnson as well and, and just sort of following his story and, and hearing from him along that road and, you know, after his father passed away. It was just a really neat moment uh, and such great tennis. And I had just this moment as I was going up to him for the post-match interview thinking, 
like, gosh, this is really unfortunate that people weren't here to see this. And so, yeah, just an element of like, oh, like just kind of sad and, and, you know, sad because, you know, tennis fans are like dying to watch tennis. Like I can't wait until they get back in the stadium. I think it's going to be rowdy. I hope it is. I love that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just, it's just a, a bummer and it's, it is what it is right now. And it's what we've had to do, but it's, it was nice to see fans in Paris and the fact that that seemed to go okay. Um, again, outside looking in, I'm sure things on the inside were far more complicated, uh, but it's nice to sort of see it on a smaller basis. I think the players enjoyed that and baby steps is the hope, I guess, until we can sort of get back to capacity and hopefully this vaccine is gonna be rolling in quick. Yes, um, we, we all hope. Um, it's funny on the, on the sad front, I think that's, that's a good way and easy way to characterize it. When it hit me, it was a, a photo post on Twitter of the cafeteria area. And it's like, where's everyone eating lunch? And I don't know why that is what my US Open, like, oh my God, like that, that's where it hit me. I don't know why I must love lunch. There must be something wrong with me, but that's where it really hit me. Um, for the, for like the US Open final though, on both the, the men's side and the women's side, you did get like a lot of staff in the stadiums. What were those big matches like when kind of everyone who was off work or had a chance, you know, decided to roll in? That was nice. Uh, I, I was there for the last probably half, well, well the last set maybe of the women's final. Uh, and there was actually applause and, and there was, you know, a slight feeling of atmosphere also with this feeling of this is historic. Like when you're sort of looking around and I'm sitting right in front of the president's box because you could pretty much sit wherever you wanted. Uh, there was just that feeling of, you know, you could hear everything. You could hear the players, you could hit, hear the ball hitting the racket and, and, you know, the, the side you could hear the noises that the players were making on the court. It, it was just a feeling of sort of being in the action, probably more so than I've ever experienced because that, especially at the U S open sort of the hum of the crowd really drowns out some of that. Uh, and where I really noticed it the most actually, is I was watching uh, Serena play soccer -y. and hearing Serena up close with, with no background noise was really an experience in itself. I mean, you are like in it, it is intense. Uh, so, I mean, yes, it was, it was bizarre. It was historic. There was a little bit of sadness, but also there was the feeling that, hey, this is still a Grand Slam final. This is still a huge moment. And, and Naomi Osaka's storyline over the past three weeks leading up to that point was, was massive on an, an international level yeah. so it, there was yeah just it was special it was special and sad at, at the same time if that makes sense uh, and then the men's final I watched from the photo pit <laughs> which was uh, <laughs> after my wheelchair finals were done over on Armstrong I went down into the photo pit which has become my favorite spot if I can get down there if there's room for me oh it is, and as a ball person, I'm sure you experienced it. Um, I did. It is so fun to watch from down there. I love it. Yeah, the the strength, the power, the speed, it's all heightened when you're, for, for those who don't know, your eyes are basically on court level, which is like a really, there's no real seats in tennis, I don't think, that uh, replicate that. 
did you feel like the players hated it or or were they okay? Because uh, there were some some quotes. I think Nadal in particular, he said during the pandemic that tennis loses pretty much everything if there's no crowd. This is what we play for. This is why we play. There's that side of it, but there's also the side where half the world is playing and you know nobody's showing up to watch. I think it depends on the player. I think some players were like, who cares? And I think some players, you know, like a Rafa who gets a lot of love, I definitely think that would be a huge shift in, in what the very top players are used to. I mean, I have to say with watching that final and the nerves that were on such you know, visceral, like you could feel it uh, between team and Zverev. Had there been a crowd for that? I don't, I mean, I have no idea how that match would have ended. And I really do think that it could have possibly affected who ended up winning that match. Uh, just because, I mean, you know, the New York crowd, they would have seized onto the fact they can smell blood. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, I mean, it was like just uh, the, the nerves were just oozing out their pores, it seemed like. So I would have loved to have seen that match with the crowd. And I was on the side. I thought that match was was fascinating. It was relatable in a way that we haven't seen in a long time at the very, very top level, because it's been these guys who have who are superhuman in those high stress, high pressure environments and that those have been the guys that we've seen in the men's finals for years and years and so I thought it was fascinating to sort of watch that play out and I would have loved to have seen how how the crowd would have reacted but yeah I just think it depended on the player to go back to your question some people I'm sure were like where is everyone and some people were like this is what I'm used to this is totally <laughs> fine with me right no I, I do wonder if the the silence, sometimes silence can be deafening and, you know, you can hear yourself breathe and you can hear yourself think and there's no distraction, right? And I think that might've contributed to the insane nerves that both of them, uh, Zverev and team were clearly feeling because there, there was no, there was no, I think, chance for them to kind of be in the moment and let their mind wander. They were thinking about all of the circumstances which is really the last thing you want to be thinking about. You got to focus on, you know, serve this point right now. And it just seems like they both struggled to do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another interesting point from a psychological perspective is I think some players think more and that's totally fine with them. And I think some players are programmed to think less on the court. And when they're given the opportunity to think more or when they're overthinking, things can start to short circuit. I mean, I, I think like a, a Daniil Medvedev, for instance, seems like a relatively thoughtful player on the court. I think, uh, speaking of another match where no fans could have contributed to the result was the Tsitsipas-Chorich match, uh, which yeah. started on my birthday and ended on September 5th. Uh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought that match was gonna be for sure be over uh, at a pretty quick, clip it ended up not being but I think Tsitsipas has the potential to overthink in certain situations and when you can hear every word that his dad is saying to him from the stands when you can see his dad up pacing on the phone up in the lower bowl and there aren't any fans to sort of obscure those things 
yeah, I, I think some players would short circuit in that setting. And then I think other players sort of like that serene, they can really sort of, you can sort of see the wheels turning and that's a good thing for them. So it's totally personality based, I think. That was crazy. I, I think, I think his father really distracted him. And anyway, that was insane. That, that's, that's a conversation <laughs> for another day. Yeah. We can talk to his parents uh, on another talk. I would love to. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, let's let's end here. Let's talk about what the Australian Open should take and maybe some things it should adjust from what we saw at the French and the U.S. Open. Or uh, maybe maybe the U.S. Open nailed it and kind of everything was, was exactly how it should be, you know, in terms of running a major tournament during a pandemic. Cool. Well, I was reading actually this morning Riley Opelka's interview with uh, Jerry Nathan, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong for for Riley. Uh, oh no, I used to. I, I've spoken to him, uh, Gurry, I think. Gurry. Yeah. Gurry. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I, anyway, no, I might be wrong too. This this is another time where it would help to actually hear it uh, versus just read it. But uh, but Riley was saying, and and he's a fantastic interview, as I have said time and time again, but he was saying how he felt the US Open did a great job. He said Roland Garros was, was also pretty good. I definitely think it's not ideal to have non-tournament personnel or players staying in the same hotel that players are staying in. That is not ideal. I think based on history, the Australian Open is going to take everything that was learned in those first two slams post COVID or during COVID. And I think they're going to use those and make it 10 times better. I think that is the MO of the Australian Open. I mean, just even looking at the prize money and how much players are gonna get if they are a first round loser there, they always do it the right way in Australia. And so, and, and also it's nice in terms of if, if there's a good thing that comes out of the fact that they are gonna have to be so strict just because of the governmental regulations, I mean, I've heard that the Crown Hotel is going to become like the, like the tournament hotel. And I don't, have you ever had a chance to go to the Australian Open? The one I'm missing. It is, I mean, it's beautiful and it's massive and there are restaurants in the hotel. I mean, so I, I feel like they're going to have all the ingredients to give the players a sense of freedom with also keeping things very much bubbled and safe. So I'm expecting yeah. big things in Australia. That's good to hear. Um, do you know where your next stop is? Where, where, what next time you're getting on a plane? So uh, I can't, I can't really okay. answer this question. And I think <laughs> I, <laughs> only because I think some things aren't, uh, aren't, Announced. quite yes yes uh so that said i i think it's forthcoming um so i think the uh there there may be some schedule shifts as you might imagine based on the fact that the australian open is now starting on february 8th uh, and i think other tournaments are going to have to adjust and that is going to dictate where my first tournament of the year is going to be so uh Props to the tournaments who are just finding a way. I feel like that is has, has to be the motto. Let's find a way. Go go rogue if you have to. Each tournament is its own little micro economy and they have to look out for their people. So props. So the breaking news on Monday Match Analysis is that there will be breaking news. 
<laughs> there you go. And you've heard it here first. And yeah. this is official reporting right here, right now. <laughs> Uh, that's that's exactly right. I think uh, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how everything shakes out. But I will say I can't wait to go back to work. I miss tennis. I miss the atmosphere of of the tournament. I miss talking to the players and and learning more about about what they do and what they're thinking on the court. I miss it. Yeah. Well, can't wait to uh, to see you back out there. <laughs> Thanks, and uh, as you know, big fan of your work. I really appreciate you coming on here. This has been fun. Uh, I hope we can do it again. And I clearly need to up my background game. This is not doing the windows are not. Cool. <laughs>